Hi, I'm Sakita Holly. I am an award-winning publicist and entrepreneur obsessed with transforming brands, and I am dedicated to sharing everything that I've learned along the way to help you win at work, in business, and everywhere in between. On this podcast, you will have direct, unfiltered access to your favorite creatives, entrepreneurs, and executives, and the methods that have made both them and myself successful. This is the Sakita Method. To live tweet this episode, use the hashtag the Sakita Method and be sure to tag me at Miss Success, that's M I S S Success, on both Instagram and Twitter. Today's guest is Cornell McBride Jr., president and CEO of McBride Research Laboratories, a family-owned business best known for creating the legacy hair care brand Design Essentials. After 31 years of creating and bringing innovative brands to the global beauty marketplace, Cornell McBride Jr. is on a personal mission to share all of the lessons and best practices he's learned along the way with both aspiring and veteran entrepreneurs to help them achieve similar long-term success. On today's episode, we will discuss longevity and legacy and the tools and mindset today's business owners need to achieve both. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. So I, I have to acknowledge this first. You attended okay. the illustrious Howard University, as did I. You, of course. You know. <laughs> you know, I so did. I had, had to start with that because my audience, they already know how we of get course. down. <laughs> but I want to know, right, right. what was your time at Howard like? And in what ways would you say being an alum has impacted your life and career? Oh, wow. Uh, for me, Howard was, that was like the best four years of my life. You know, um, if someone asked me if I would do it all over again, I would definitely do it all over again. I think uh, when I left school early on, when I left to go to school, I wanted to go someplace far away. Uh, I wanted to go someplace where anyone didn't really know know my name or who I was, anything like that. And I decided to go to um, Howard. And uh, when I got there, uh, I was just really in awe because I think for the first for the first time in my life, um, I was in a black utopia. That's what to me what a, a HBCU is, where everything you see on campus, from the leadership to the professor, is majority African American, right? Whereas before, you know, when you go through school, public school system, whatever, or wherever you're coming from, um, everything you see on a daily basis from going to school. The people in charge and the leadership didn't always look like youth, you know, and that was one of the biggest differences I felt from going to Howard. Not only did the people who were in charge running everything look like me, um, the people who were attending the campus, you know, looked like me, and it was, you know, a bunch of progressive, intelligent, smart people. So I felt um, in the first time in my life, one, I was in this utopian society, and two, uh, uh, is where you kind of develop a sense of a stronger sense of black pride. Even though I'd come from uh, coming coming out of Atlanta and there's a lot of progressiveness when it comes to, you know, black politicians or uh, businesses and things of that nature, still, even though, even though I had a father who had his own business, still, uh, you still kind of have this, could have this perspective 
that something that comes from um, a European society or a white society is a little bit better or different or whatever, by the time you go to school, by the time you watch TV, media, and all that kind of stuff, it can kind of bend your perspective. So when I went to Howard, I was I felt that I was somewhat deprogrammed, and the amount of great the amount of black pride increased tremendously. But it increased because of people we were around. It increased because of what you saw every day. You know, it's not always about what who you are talking to. Sometimes it's the environment you're in and what you see. Absolutely. And the environment you're in and what you see can have a strong influence. And so when I think back of those four years of life, it kind of um, prepared me. Um, not only as uh, a business person, you know, graduate, you know, you know, with a degree, but I think it prepared me as a person and a human being and understand what it means to be African-American, what it means to be proud, and then the responsibility that goes along with it. And so that's how I see my experience at, at Howard. That's incredible. And I have to say for the audience that you also went on to get your MBA at Georgia State. So you went back home for, for your MBA. I, I did. And that journey was just in business or in life. You have to be a learned individual. Just You always want to kind of learn. And I had a job. I had a secure job. I'm working for the family business. I'm working for my parents, for my father. I did not have to go back and get an MBA, but I did that on, um, by choice because if I'm going to kind of run this company and do this job, it's like, how do you improve your skills? And so you never stop doing that. So I, yeah, I get my master's from Georgia State University. I went there part time. But also, I've always, always also attended other type of certification courses along the way and prior to that. And even today in 2021, I'm in a uh, business group called Vistage, and I have a business coach along with having monthly meetings um, with other people who are business owners. Uh, and we kind of, you know, not only do we work through our issues within our business, but at the same time, we have speakers that come in and talk about different things from personal to health to business. So you never stop learning. Absolutely. In a, in a, in a business environment. So so my master's was me to allow me to continue on and then being a part of a business group um, is, is helpful as well because you want to learn all the time. For sure. And I'm glad that you mentioned the family business because I, in the intro, I talked about you and your 31 years of experience, but that's not where your first taste of entrepreneurship began or came from. Your father, for those that don't know, is Cornell McBride Sr., a beauty and grooming industry icon and pioneer who, along with a business partner, created Stay Soft Fro in the 70s, which was the first softening product for African-Americans men's hair, making it more manageable and easy to comb. And that business was M&M Products and was highly successful during the 70s and 80s and was acquired in 1989. What were your early years like watching your father build that business? And when did you realize that entrepreneurship was something that you might want to pursue? Yeah, I always tell this story when the company first started in 1973. I was eight years old. Eight years old. My father and his business partner, a college friend of his, uh, they were using this product on their hair, and it was softening the hair. And at that time, you know, afros was big. So when you had an afro, the biggest thing with an afro is it tangled, right? When you go to pick it out, you know, depending on the texture of your hair, uh, uh, it's, it would be difficult to pick it out. Now, there were products called Afro Sheen, but Afro Sheen just kind of made the hair shiny, whereas Stay Soft Fro came along and it softened the hair and it made it manageable. 
And so they were using this product. They gave it to some friends and friends really, everyone kept coming back saying, hey, we really like this product. So they decided to actually market the product. And when they first started marketing the product and they created State Soft Froze, the first production facility was in the basement of our home in Atlanta. So as a kid, eight years old, an older sister, uh, who's now deceased, we and my mother, we would go downstairs in the basement of that home and we were the original production facility. And we would have to produce these bottles of stay soft froze. So at eight years old, I'm like pumping these bottles and putting caps on them and my sister and my mother and we're packing them. And my father would come and kind of mix it up, you know, and during the day or late evenings after school, we would kind of pack it while he was out, him and his business partner were out, out selling it. And as the business grew, eventually it moved beyond the the basement of his home into an actual um, uh, manufacturing facility, and the business grew from there. And so, from eight years all, old all the way up to to college, that's where I worked. Um, so during the summers, I always worked with M and M, and I worked in every single department. So there was not a department I did not work in at M and M Products Company. It could be finance, it could be marketing, it could be social de development, it was production, it was compounding, shipping, you name it, I did it over those years. And as an individual, I just had a natural affinity to business. Uh, as a kid in high school, I read Forbes magazine and business magazines and autobiographies and things of that nature. So I, I just was just a person who had a natural affinity for business. And so I kind of, I knew when I went off to school, I would come back and, and be involved in the family business. Um, because not because it was just something that I knew, it was just something that I think I had a natural affinity for, you know, because of the way I always consumed information about um, businesses growing, business growing up and reading about business icons in the early, early 80s. That's incredible. You joined the family business at eight. <laughs> like, that yes, is I tell amazing. Yes. Wow. Yes, he paid me, he paid me two dollars a week, and I tell him he paid me two dollars a week, and I remind him. <laughs> Of that, you know, and mm -hmm. I, you know, right. I now, now clearly, I was buying enough candy to make me happy. Right, right. It, you were right, good to right. go. Two dollars a week. To go. Yeah, yes. But now that I that I'm older, I'm realizing, you know what? You got I'm over on me, Dad. Yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> that is incredible. So you experienced success um, very early. You joined the family business at eight. You had a natural affinity for it. And then the business, Eminem Products, was acquired. And in no time, yes. because it was acquired in 1989, and I believe in 1990, that's when your father launched McBride Research Laboratories, correct? So when I graduated in 87, he owned some beauty supply stores and a package store. So when I graduated, um, he, they were in the process of trying to sell the company. So I never went back and worked for Eminem mm. when I graduated. Okay. I worked at the beauty supply stores and the package stores. So I ran that for three years. And then we sold all of those businesses in 1990 to start McBride Research Laboratory. So by that time, I had experience not only in marketing, but I had experience in retail and distribution. And I mean, not only manufacturing, I had experience. I had three years of retail distribution. So I understood what the retail distribution sales was like. So, so when 1990 came along um, and we decided to start McBride Research Laboratories because he had to sit on the sideline for a few years you know, due to his non-compete, uh, he decided to sell the beauty supply stores and to sell the package stores. 
and to focus on um, McBride Research Laboratories and to focus on this new product that we had created, which is Design Essentials. And the premise was different because one, he did not want to manufacture. Two, we wanted to be very, very clear at a type of company, which was we were a marketing and distribution to sales and marketing company, not a manufacturing company. And, that's, and when you kind of can, when you know who you are, you know how to plan for yourself, right? And because of that, we did one, we said we're not gonna manu- we're not gonna manufacture our goods, we're gonna outsource it because we don't need to build that type of operation. Mm. And then two, we decided to uh, sell to professionals, start out selling to the professional community because we want to close the gap between from us to the end use of our products and to lower that barrier, that hurdle. Meaning when I make the product, I'm trying to sell it to the hairstylist, but I don't need all these barriers in the way. Whereas in retail, when you make your product, they're just natural barriers, higher barriers or hurdles. Hurdles in retail. Can you can you break down what those barriers are? Well, because in the retail, the, the one there are time frames in which you present your product, and the product is accepted by the retailer. Two, sometimes in dealing with retailers, you may have to go to a, a third party, which is a distributor, to then sell the product to the retailer on your behalf. Right. So that is a little bit higher hurdle and higher barrier. Um, in the retail space. Now, you could be successful in it, and we have been, but at that time, um, we did not want that barrier. What we wanted was to focus on the professional community. We felt the margin was better and stronger. Two, we wanted to control distribution and access to the marketplace. So when we started in 1990, the thought process, okay, how do we not only sell these products to stylists, but then create a network of distributors who would sell the products on our behalf, and then we will empower these distributors to be self-sustaining businesses and create a process or a model of, okay, if you work, the more you work, the more you earn. If you want to give yourself a raise, you go out there and you work harder, and then this becomes your business, and now you have a way, a sustainable way to take care of your family and control and put your own financial destiny in your hands. And so that was the premise of McBride Research Laboratories and how we started in 1990. And when you fast forward over the years, we have 50 over 50 of those distributors across the country today who are independent. They only sell design essentials. And most of them have been with us for over 15 years. They've averaged well over six hundred over a hundred thousand dollars minimum for most of them. Some of them were making three to four hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. And most of them wow. don't even know that to this wow. day. Right. And you, you just mentioned something, not to cut you off, you just mentioned mm-hmm. something really important that I want people to understand. So in I'm a publicist by trade. So right now in 2021 in the beauty industry or pretty much any CPG conversation, the conversation is all about direct to consumer. How can brands be direct to consumer? You guys were direct to consumer in 1990. Correct. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. And you use basically the door to door selling and, and you bu- you built up the network that way by by targeting the consumer, which was the salon professionals, because you knew they would spread it to the community because people Correct. trust what their stylist says. That's Correct. amazing. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And how does that you know, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but how does that translate to today because you still say you have over 50 distributors so you you've kept that model but what Mm -hmm. does that look like for you today oh yes the model today and the model when we started is definitely different so when we started um we had a very single line single focus we sold to our distributor our distributors sold to independent salons 
and we created a network in all those communities of a distributor with a sales team with the education team so in every market there's a distributor, the sales team i mean the distributor the sales team and his education team around the independent salon as the business grew and became more popular we went into chain schools then chain salons and so you start to move into other segments and other categories and we were able to use that strength in the independent salon level to launch into chain schools and to launch into chain salons. And then from there, we we moved from to there to chain retail with one of our collections. And along the way, what we've always tried to do is figure out how we can continue to empower those same distributors who has been with us along the way. And so when we look at the model today and how the the, the salon community is, it's a little bit different. It's not uh, as rigid or structured as it was today. Um, it's definitely more of a, a greater, what we call environment, what we call booth renters or booth renter is an independent decision maker in the salon. And so it's more of them today and maybe you have more part-time stylists. And then the, the buying habit of the salon is no, it's not as much of having a distributor come by on the schedule every two weeks or weekly. There's still some who like that, who do that there in their salon. <clears throat> but the other hairstylists who may work part-time or their schedule may be different. They work in the evening. They only work on weekends because they have these things called salon suites, which give them the flexibility to, to do these, to be a hairstylist maybe more as a part-time versus a, and then they have a full-time job. So to kind of capture this market from a distribution standpoint, we've expanded what we call like e-commerce offerings mm-hmm. um, to the stylist. So we sell, the distributors go out into the field and every, every every day, but we also sell online. And what we do because of the software and the way we have everything set up, each distributor has a zip code assigned to them. And anytime a customer and hairstylist buy from us from that zip code, they would turn back around and we give that distributor a commission on that sale. So they stay connected to everything that we're doing. Wow, that's really interesting. And again, another point as we're talking about longevity is a lot of hair care brands in the natural hair care space, even legacy brands, struggle with e-commerce. But that seems mm-hmm. to be something that you guys were able to capture or experience success with early on. Uh, yes. I mean, business is involved and, and you follow your customer. Yeah. Right? You follow the interests, you follow their um, habits and their desires. Everything is about meeting the customers um, where they are. And as you kind of look at the marketplace over the years, shifting towards e-commerce and Amazon, and Amazon was about convenience. When you look at it, Amazon as a model is convenient, right? It's, you, when you save me time and it's convenient and really you give me the most precious commodity I, I have is my time. And I can sit down and go click, click. And next thing you know, something is at my door that day and the next day. Um, then what happens, consumers tend to look for that same experience or something similar with all other brands. Absolutely. And, we, and so we realized that we had to offer a more omni-channel approach um, several years ago to where it's, it's about the consumer and not, hey, I have to sell to my distributor and this distributor is the only one who can sell to the stylist. That is not serving the customer and the stylist is the only one who can sell to the consumer. If you, when you're customer centric, is like, okay, well, we understand that customers are shopping here, here, here. So let's make the product and experience available, but then also try to keep the financial incentive similar to what you are accustomed to as a distributor or as a stylist. 
And so even for the stylist, if they choose not to retail design essentials, they can become part of our affiliate program. And then part of our affiliate program, then they receive a commission on the sales to their customers. So you still try to keep everyone in the ecosystem and on a similar type of um, commitment as you originally had with them, but you have to change according to the marketplace. Absolutely. And I want to actually go back to something you said about the founding story for McBride Research Laboratories in that you guys were in, you know, you were intentional about launching this business and outsourcing Mm -hmm. the manufacturing. Is Mm -hmm. that something that is still true today or have you brought the manufacturing in-house? A very good question. No, that is not true today. And yes, we have brought the manufacturing (laughs) in-house. So no, we so we brought it in house maybe four years ago, twenty sixteen. Okay. And in any time with business, you know what you did ten years ago, fifteen years ago could be different today. And when you start to look at the business, the, the ability to kind of control pricing and uh, um, cost, right? So we we did not want to do it, but the the contract fillers and people you're doing business with, they're constantly increasing the price. We were. Um, constantly had to pay, either absorb the price or reluctant to pass it on to the consumer. And we felt we just had an issue with controlling cost. And so we decided to, we were large enough to bring the business back in. And based on our analysis um, and based on the amount of money we felt that was um, made that that, that particular, our fillers were earning, that, you know, it was an opportunity for us to just, one, preserve our pricing and two, bring a certain amount of profitability back into the house. And based on analysis that we've discovered. So now we have greater flexibility. We control our supply chain much better and we control our cost. So the cost increases that we would have absorbed since 2016, they have not been as significant. Um, and we've been able, to, for the most part, maintain our margins because we now control that part of supply chain. That's fascinating to me because 2016 is, is fairly recent. So you guys obviously had tremendous success outsourcing because, again, you knew the market, you know the industry, mm-hmm. you know the consumer. But when, you know, you did the analysis, obviously, money talks. Right. <laughs> so, so we want to bring that back. But it just shows that for anyone listening, you can have success both ways. And mm-hmm. Depending on the type of business you have, it might make sense to go with that third party, at least in the beginning. Correct. Yeah, I mean, a business in phases, right? If you try to, it's like you don't do it all at once. Say that right? one more time. Say that one more time. Business is in phases. Mm-hmm. You do not do it all at once. You move from, from one phase to the next phase to the next phase. I needed that. You don't do it all at once for me. That's why mm-hmm. I wanted you to say that again. I'm like, you, the people need to hear that. And I am the people. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's jump back into this. So the 90s were such an exciting time and a sort of renaissance for Black culture, Black business. But I'm sure that there were also challenges to bringing design essentials to market. Can you recall any of those early challenges and discuss like how you overcame them? Um, I mean, in any business, there are always challenges. You have uh, competitive challenges. You have uh, challenges to your system. So you would have challenges. Let's say, for example, our model with our distributors, hey, you, this is exclusive. You can only carry design essential, right? And then, of course, you would have people who decide, okay, I will sign this agreement with you to say I'm going to only carry design essentials, but I'm going to do something different, right? And so, and so you had to kind of, 
let everyone know that no, these are the rules, and you had to enforce enforce them, no matter how great that distributor may have been, and how much sales you're going to lose in the short run, right? Because you definitely lose the sales, but if that distributor violated the terms of the agreement. What was greater than losing the sales in that territory would have been losing the credibility amongst all the distributors, right? So you have to kind of weigh that. So that's one of the challenges that you that we experienced early on, that there's always a challenge to the system in that regards. The other, I'm not sure if I would call it a challenge, is that part of our secret sauce is that when you start with these individuals who, you know, you're giving them a chance to start a business with like zero money down. And so what would happen, they, we would find someone for a market, we would train them, you know, tell them these are the expectations, we would take them into the market. Most of the time we would give them the product on credit. The average distributor at that time, within a few weeks, you probably were depositing three, four thousand dollars a week into your account, right? And now, can you imagine all that? You've never, at any point in your life, had this amount of money going into your account, and you do not know what to do with it. And the natural thing to do is to spend it all. Well, if you spend it all, then where's the money for the inventory that you just sold, right? Mm-hmm. You should be spending only the profit. And so what would happen from a business standpoint, people would um, come in and take the money and, and, and run, right, or not pay us. And so they, they would call themselves stiffing us, right? Well, for us, we didn't shy away from what we believe because if you receive, and it'd be large sum, like $7,000, $10,000 worth of product, they would sell it all and sometimes they would leave and not finish or whatever. But in order to get your money, you had to sell it, Right. So even you, if you got the money and did not decide not to pay me, you just put $7,000 worth of product in that marketplace. And guess what happened after that? I had to, we had demand, mm. right? So even if you left, we had demand. That's better than any ad. That's better than any magazine ad that we could have run, right? If you think about it from a comparative analysis, I'm going to run a magazine ad to do to, to It's going to cost me several thousand dollars for demand. I just gave this person $7,000 worth of product and I took a risk. The risk didn't work out. The worst case scenario, he did sell it. He sampled everyone. I didn't get my $7,000 back, but sure enough, my phone started ringing in that area. And sure enough, I found somebody else to be a distributor. That's a really great way to, in perspective, to have on being taken advantage of. (laughs) (laughs) Like that, I'm listening like, oh my God, I feel so much better about Mm -hmm. people that have done things like that. Because again, it does spread the word about you and your business. And that is a very positive way to look Mm -hmm. at it. Another thing I want to touch on before we move on is exclusivity. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that was a thing then with the the distribution network you had. But it's even more so a thing now with distributors, maybe influencers or partners and creators that you work with. How do Mm -hmm. you convince someone to exclusively work with design essentials when there is like a new shiny brand or something happening every single day? Uh, Yeah. So, for example, I mean, it's just a part of our, from 30 years, our agreement, right, our contract. So when it comes to our distributors, they're the only ones who who, who really operate with that agreement. But it works both ways because when they're in a territory and it's been defined, their fellow distributor cannot go sell in that territory, which means all the sweat equity that they put in that territory is theirs and it's protected, Right. And the way you protect it is say, okay, I'll make sure, you know, no one else comes and sell in the territory because you put this sweat equity in. 
But then you, on the other hand, cannot go out and decide, oh, I'm just going to bring this brand in and this brand in and this brand in. That does not work because that's not our system. right? Our system says, no, you only sell design essentials and we will work together to develop the market and I will protect your sweat equity in your work. So it's, it's a two-way relationship where we both benefit because if you look at the history of the market, the history of the market says whenever a brand started out on an exclusive basis, they always opened it up for full distribution to competitors without them. Um, eventually they will open it up. And if you take the path of every professional brand in the space, that's what happened, right? You start off, you have success, you have these distributors, and then eventually you would um, your demand will grow, but then your distributor cannot keep up with your demand, right? And because your distributor cannot keep up with demand, you need more demand than all the other people who start to ask and want your product, you, you, you let them have the product, right? Now, the distributor who kind of started that is upset and bothered because he just put all his work in. Even though he could not keep up with demand, he put all his work in and it was it was taken away from him. So historically, that's what happens in this market. And so in 1990, we wanted to do something different. And so our model was the first exclusive distribution model um, probably on either side of the space when it comes to professional products. Most people had salespeople that work for a larger distributor on the general market side. Dudley's had a sales team that were employees that worked for Dudley's. We were the only company in the space to have a network of independent distributors who exclusively carry design centers. And that has been our key to success. And another key to your success, which you just explained, is take care of your people. Mm-hmm. Take care of yeah. your people because you're right. A lot of businesses, they'll start out and people will be loyal to them. And mm-hmm. then they don't, you know, they're like, okay, we need to go to someone bigger. But it's like help right. them grow because like you said, they put in that sweat sweat equity. They put so in sweat equity, yes. That's, mm-hmm. an, that's a really, really key lesson um, and definitely a testament to why you guys are still here and thriving. So I want to go back to intentionality with launching... McBride Research Laboratories. So your father's previous company, he held that before acquisition for 16 years. Was the creation of MRL intended to be a legacy brand and a crown jewel for the family or just has it just turned out that way? Um, yeah, I mean, for him as uh, uh, a black man growing up, born in the 40s, right? And you as a black entrepreneur in you are looking to build a brand as a legacy or business as a legacy. That's because, you know, you you know, it's a different type of understanding or attachment. So for him, it's not just an asset. It's a legacy. So we, he started out and built it as a legacy for the family. And in, in his world, it's something that you build to pass along and to pass along. So in the 31 years, have you received acquisition inquiries? Um, any business is going to receive um, those type of inquiries from time to time. If you're growing, I was about to say, not not that. everybody now. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody. Y'all were doing something right, so people came knocking. Okay. Yeah, and we've always dealt with that. We've always dealt with rumors, but we've never pursued any of those things. Okay. You Has know? have um, you guys ever considered, or have uh, that's not to my knowledge, acquired any brands, or is that something you'd consider in the future? Yeah, it is something we would consider if, if it fits. Um, you think about it from time to time. 
I think there was this one smaller entity outfit years ago. I just ran across a file. I was looking through some old files and it was this young lady. She had some natural products, all natural. And I never forget this. And this is before the whole natural movement um, really took off, right? Before all those natural brands were in Target and all of that, right? And, and before men started using beard oil, and we wanted to buy her brands from her. And she had this one brand that was doing well on Amazon like crazy, and it was a beard oil. She could not keep it in stock. And we tried to buy that because the most popular thing she had at the time was the beard oil. Now, she had a bunch of natural formulas, purely natural formulas with natural hair. And she had some distribution, I want to say, in Whole Foods at the time. But those formulas were not stable. They separated and things of that nature. But what was intriguing to us was the beard oil. But that deal uh, did not go through. But if you think about today, men, beard, and natural hair, this conversation took place long before the natural hair and long before we knew men we're really using beard oils the way they're using beard oils today. Wow. Speak, speaking of that and, and you guys' um, pursuit of this other company, what other brands exist under the MRL umbrella right now? So our brands are, it's basically it's the Design Essentials Professional Collection and the Design Essentials Natural Collection. Um, under the Professional Collection, we have some smaller collections of uh, our color, hair color system. For covering gray on the professional side. And then we have another collection we have is the STS or a sipping therapy system, which is designed to uh, uh, take curly hair and safely thermally straighten it. Right. And so those are some sub collections under uh, the design essentials professional. And of course, you have design essentials natural and another collection of the design natural almond avocado collection. You have our design essentials coconut manoi collection. And we have our design essentials, agave and lavender. And then agave and lavender is a retail collection for um, blow-drying curly hair. Got it. So Design Essentials today is a thriving global beauty brand. The business retail and media landscape obviously is much different than it was when you launched. If you had to launch the brand all over again, what are three essential, <laughs> of course, things you'd make sure were in place? Um, you just if I launched all over again, it's all about e-commerce and understanding customer acquisition, right? Um, so it would be a pure e-commerce company to launch all over again with an uber focus on the sales funnel and uh, customer acquisition, and you can get a lot done just doing those things with a brand. And and there are companies who are building significant brands much larger than ours, just doing that, right? Because people do not understand, may not understand the power of what they can do just on their website alone with the right type of uh, team who truly understands uh, how to really go through that uh, customer acquisition process. One of the things that, that has been a common thread through our conversation so far is analysis, right? And you just mm -hmm. touched yeah. on it again with understanding customer acquisition. So what I'm hearing is understanding the data. How do mm -hmm. you 
understand or collect your data on customers and businesses? Like what should today's entrepreneurs, especially if they have a consumer product, um, is there, you know, are there brands that we can tap into to get these insights or what should we be looking to do um, to have this information so that we can understand it better? Right. So we've always purchased historically, we've always purchased uh, research information. Nielsen provides information. Uh, Sydney IRI provides it, and there are a few others. The name is kind of escaping me. It'll come to me in a second. So we buy industry reports. Uh, you have one on black hair. You just have one on general market, body, skin. So you have natural. You just have these different reports that you can purchase. Then along with that, we you can also purchase the sales data, which is the scan data, um, of of from what we call multi outlets. So the, the Walgreens and WalMarts and Target of of the world's provide their scan or sales data to this uh, Symphony RI and you purchase that. And now you know uh, what your competitors are selling or you can put them in categories, you know, which categories are hot, which ones are growing. And so that gives you the foundation. You're not blindly moving into a market segment, right? When you move into a market segment, you understand the opportunity, you understand the size and you understand the rate in which it is growing, right? And then you need to make a determination if you want to compete you know who the competitors are, you know why they're winning and not not winning, and then you know which one of those young competitors are, are is growing. And so to me, you, you kind of have to do all of that when you're introducing new products or new brands or new collections or new categories. There has to be a purpose and intent for whatever you do, and you want to make sure you have all the right research to go along with it, even when you look at what we talk about, like the forward trends, right? And understanding what you see today, Three years from now, four years from now, five years from now. Mm-hmm. And so we've always kind of, um, that's one of the things that has sustained us is the ability to pivot long before the market pivot, right? So a lot of our, a lot of things we've done from a business standpoint, uh, we didn't just always stay stuck on who we were in 1990. You know, we took, we let the marketplace dictate, okay, we should be doing this now, or we should be considering this at this time based on what we see two or three years from now. You can't start doing it two years from now, right? You, oh, this is what, no, you have to know two years from now, a year from now, what you're going to do. You have to so forecast. A, you have to forecast. So as a business owner or as a president, tomorrow is done. Three months from now, two months, next week is done. There's nothing I can really do to impact the next 30 days, right? Strategically. But I can look out and say, okay, uh, 12 months from now, this is what should be taking place. 24 months from now, this is what should be taking place. Have that outline, and then you start to adjust accordingly. But you're using the information that's available to you uh, through different resources to make a determination where you want the company to be. And it's not just sales. It's just not just marketing. I think strategically, you look at, you know, you look at organization as a strategy. You look at people as a strategy. You look at, to me, I look at all of this as a strategy, right? And how we need to change. So we're not just changing our product and things of that nature. We look at how we change the organization and it's not necessarily people, but how do you make the office better, right? How do you, you know, what do you do inside your office to make the environment better for the people today that is different than five years ago? So to me, you're always looking at it holistically. I am just so fascinated. (laughs) 
I am really fascinated by this. And I want to touch on something that I'm sure a lot of business owners struggle with, and that is funding. In mm-hmm. previous interviews, you've talked about un, um, alternative funding options that can help a business strengthen their national and international business operations. What would some of those options be? And has MRL or Design Essentials ever taken on any funding or have you guys been fully self-funded? No, we've always, but ours is always just more so. We don't take it traditionally was through debt. Uh, early on, um, we were fortunate to have a bank. Um, so we're in Atlanta. Um, there, there were a couple of black banks here in Atlanta. And one of them, when we wanted to get a business loan early on in the 1990s, uh, they decided to give us the loan. And then we had, like my father owned three or 400 acres of land, right? So he had the collateral. Well, ironically, um, traditional banks did not want to loan even though they had the collateral to go along with it, right? So, so just can you imagine you have this land is worth a certain amount? Uh, you know it's worth a certain amount, even if you put the lowest valuation on it. The land was basically, I want to say, debt free or for the most part unencumbered. And so you walk in with the collateral, and then the bank says they have a tendency to say no. Mm-hmm. So what happened for us? We were able to go into a uh, citizen trust bank which was founded by Mr. Gregory Barranco, um, and he's one of the local business leaders here. He owns uh, several dealerships. Uh, He owns several dealerships here, but he's always been a successful business person dealership. Now, ironically, my father and Mr. Barranco, we all live in the same neighborhood, right? So, you know, when I, as, as as a kid, when I was younger, they lived down the street from us, you know, so they've known one another for a long time. Wow. Right. So by the time we got to the 1990s, when he had started this um, bank, and when we needed to go get a loan, it was it was he was my father was fortunate, right? He was fortunate because of this, this connection, this relationship, etc. And he had the assets to go along with it. Uh, but traditionally, you know, you don't always have that. And I understand that most businesses do not always, you know, do not always have that. The struggle is different. So what you have to have to start out to make it easier as I shared before in anything, as much as you can, the more money you have to kind of put up as collateral, the more assets you have, or more is the better off you are, versus if you're funding with an idea or you're funding with no money, then the hurdle is a little bit different. And a lot of times if you get to a a, a banker or a lending person, and it's different. So in the 90s it was more relationship, which means when that person was making a decision about you in the late 80s, early, oh, I know you. You follow me? I know you. I know about you. I know what you've done. Yep. So, yes, I'm going to do this. Today, I don't know if it's, that's the same, right? It's, it's, it's not the same level. So if you can establish those type of banking relationships with the banks, smaller banks, you're not going to establish that with the Bank of America. I'll tell you that right now. But if there is a smaller independent bank in your um, in your area where you live, then open an account there, depositing funds there, um, and building your credit, taking small loans and paying them off, right? Let's say, for example, if I have uh, uh, $10,000 or whatever the case may be, and I may get a small loan of three or 4000 right? Now, I know I could pay it off, but I'm going to get the $3,000 $4,000 loan, pay it back. I'm going to get it to pay it back. And I'm going to get it to pay it back. And so all of a sudden, I'm building that that. You're speaking to my spirit right now. You're speaking speaking to my spirit because 
Wow. I just want to touch on that because our community, we have a very hmm, interesting relationship with money just Mm -hmm. across the board. But we are so entrepreneurial since, I mean, conception, we are very entrepreneurial, but we may also be afraid, even if we have the money, even if we have a business that is profitable, we can't keep our products on the shelf. We may be afraid of taking the risk of even taking out a loan of three to $4,000, even if we have Mm -hmm. that money in the bank. Mm -hmm. Please help us get over this. Yeah, I mean... um... Wealth, you know, part of wealth is the ability to have credit. And, you know, yes. that's how you build wealth, right? In the general uh, market, they use other people's money to get ahead. They use other people's money because other people's money is leverage, you know, because that's that's kind of what you need. And so we, you definitely have to have that from a business standpoint. And I think it's learning, not only learning from a cash standpoint, but learning the management of credit and credit score, right? So you, you, it's almost as if you should have credit score monitoring. You know what it is. You should have credit score and understand it. You should understand if I have credit cards, I should always keep my credit card balance at below 50% of the outstanding line of credit. You know, these are some basic, like some things you can understand, you know, well, what should my overall unsecured debt be to my income, right? So what should that ratio be? Because that those are all the things that when they when someone goes to evaluate you on a loan, they look at ratios. So why not know the ratios and then live by the ratios? So by the time you go sit down with that lending institution, you already know, well, one thing you cannot do is turn me down because my ratios out of order. Because I know what they are, right? I know how you I know how you grade me. Right. So it's like when buying a house, there's a clear formula for buying a house. Right. You know, they, they know what number of gross income, they know unsecured. These are percentages. And I and we, I did a class on this style uh, um, last year with a, with a loan officer. They know these things. Right. And because they know that when you walk into. To buy a house. Right. And if you know what that note should be in reference to your gross income and do you know the remainder, what your unsecured should be in reference to that gross income. If you qualify and meet all of those things, nine times out of 10, and you have a good credit score, nine times out of 10, you're going to get the loan. And the reason you want to have a good credit score is because you understand it before you walk in there and you've been able to kind of manipulate it and keep it in order. Mm. You know, Absolutely. And so you just like you manage your bills, you're supposed to manage your credit score. And if you're not managing your credit score on a monthly basis, that's a problem. Absolutely. So. Listeners, we got to get our stuff together, okay? <laughs> we we have to get our stuff together. We have to pay attention to the numbers because sometimes we don't look at the numbers. And that's something that we have to get better at. And we have to understand our data just across the board, personally, as well as within our businesses. So um, I have a few more questions for you. And I'm not sure if you'll agree with this next point. But Design Essentials has obviously stood the test of time. But in the multicultural beauty and grooming landscape, I feel that your brand is like a silent assassin. Like it's a quiet mm-hmm. brand. Like you guys mm-hmm. put you you create innovative solutions for beauty and grooming and you keep it pushing. You know, there are right. uh, there are other brands that may be a bit more buzzy. They may be doing Correct. all of these, you know, exciting activations and things like that. Yes. But you guys have chosen 
to just do what you do <laughs> and, and yeah. stay in your lane. Is that <laughs> is that deliberate or is it something that you're just like, okay, we found a formula that works for us. We update it as needed, but this is what works for us. Yes. It's like the tortoise in here. We are the tortoise and we know that we're the tortoise and we've always been the tortoise. But along the way of being the tortoise, we, we've seen plenty of hairs. We've walked, we've passed, we walked past hairs and they've been out of gas on the side of the road. Right. They took off, they blew past us. And the next thing you know, we're walking past them again. And we never changed our speed. So we're the tortoise in the air. We focus on what we do. We focus on what we know how to do. And uh, and so there's always a lot of noise around brands and what they're doing and, and size. And I tell you right now in this space, that's noise, right? It's just noise. And if, if a person really kind of paid attention, they will, if a person really took the time to remove the noise, they will see different brands other than what the noise is telling them. Mm. It's from a standpoint of truly brands that have good distribution, good size and revenue and all that kind of stuff. When you remove all the noise and you start to peel back, you see that there are a lot of brands out there that have been around that has been around for a while that doesn't have the noise, but they're more much more substantial than what you think, and they're more substantial than the brands thought know. That is absolutely true. So what I'm hearing and what I've heard throughout this entire conversation is that Design Essentials and MRL, you guys are not afraid of evolution. You are not afraid mm -hmm. of ch the changing market. You're not afraid of consumer taste changes. But one thing that you're not going to do is chase trends, which is what you've seen other brands do. Is that accurate to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, you just have to have a plan or a focus. And a lot of times, some people, you get to lose focus by chasing what someone else is doing, right? What looks popular, what looks popular on social media and things of that nature. And then you're losing focus. And that means that person is actually winning competitively. Because in a competitive environment, when you can, when you're chasing your competition, you don't have a strategy. If your strategy is to chase your competition, that means you do not have a strategy. And if your strategy is to copy your competition, right, that, that means you, you really don't have a direction. You don't know what you're doing. You're on the defensive, you follow me, versus, no, I see what they're doing. I understand what they're doing, but this is what we're doing. We're hitting our markers. These are our markers of success, and we're going to stay focused on that because what they do over there, they do well, and what we do over here, we do well, right? And so we believe there are things that we can do that people cannot do. Right. They cannot do. They cannot touch. And there are things that the competitors do that we just can't excel at. They're better at it. Right. And, and I know they're better at it. Right. And so because they're better at it, there sometimes you have to concede that. Right. But if I know I'm better over here and I'm winning over here. Right. Then that's where I'm going to stay. That's where I'm going to play. And that's where we want to win because I can't win at everything. You have to be willing to concede. Absolutely. I, the word that I want people to hear is that if your strategy is to do what other people are doing, you do not have a strategy. Yes, that, no, that, is, that is a word. So a couple more questions. And these are from you to our listeners. So as an executive who has been in the game for 30 plus years, I mean, longer now that I know you entered the family business at eight, mm -hmm. at, eight. Yes. <laughs> at eight, how mm -hmm. do you, how do you stay inspired and motivated to keep innovating? Because you've seen it all up until this point. How do you stay inspired? Um, I think it's, it's about building, it's what you're trying to build and accomplish. 
And um, so for, uh, for me and the company, and what we're trying to do is build a global beauty brand and trying to, so for my father who built the company, right? And he reached out when he built this company, I think it was over $50 million in revenue or something like that. And, you know, Stace uh, Alfro, he had an identity and all of that. So of course, naturally, I have to let him know what my goal is, of course, you know, pass all that that you accomplish, you know, so is what I share with him. That start, starts there. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I do want to build um, something that's significant. We want to build a global beauty brand beyond here and to get into skin and body. And we want to build it globally um, into other markets. Um, and Africa is, you know, something that's kind of like near and dear to me. And so part of the excitement is, no, you've had your success here. We've had this pathway that we follow. And part of the way we've gone to different phases and we said, okay, when you get to this state of state, you do this. Then when you get to this state of state, you do this. And so we've been successful in the U.S. opening up um, markets. And so what excites me now as we continue to our distribution in the U.S. after 30 years, ironically, it's, like, it's almost as if it's exploding <laughs> in uh, 2020 and 2021, right? And no one really knows our distribution is exploding the way it is, not just growing, it's exploding. But beyond that, uh, when we look into, especially Africa, I just feel there's just so much potential there. And uh, for us, it's different and we want to do it different. Most people treat Africa Africa as a place to dump product, not a place to develop a brand, mm. right? So for me, I don't want to just dump product and you never see the owner. No, I want to go there, be a part of the, the growth and the development of Africa and build a brand. And the opportunity I feel to build a brand in Africa is far greater than anything we've done here. Wow. I love that. I went to Ghana right before everything shut down. I had the best time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Had Mm -hmm. the absolute best time. I have a friend that um, she moved to Nigeria. She's from Nigeria, but she went to college here. And she Mm -hmm. talks about the business opportunities there all the time. Yes. Um, it It is very exciting. And then when you think, when you look at the population and how most of the entire continent is young people. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, yes. there's just, I mean, the possibilities are endless. And like you said, they, endless. they've been overlooked for too long in both yes. of our opinions. So for, I, I want you to give a word of encouragement to an entrepreneur or even an executive who may be on the verge of shutting down their business based on the past year, or they may just be burnt out from other unknown challenges. Like you have been in the game for so long. Help us stay in the game. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I think one for me personally is fortunate that I, I think, do think, I feel I'm doing something I really enjoy, right? And so it makes it easier to kind of get up every day. Um, so it starts with, are you really, really in the place of what you truly enjoy? Because I think that's half of the battle. And it makes the rest of the day and rest of the, everything you do to me becomes easier after that. Um, and I think you also have to have a purpose of what you're doing that's beyond um, monetary, right? And so is there a fulfilling purpose when you get up every day as well and finding what that purpose is? And so I, if you're doing those things and focusing on um, uh, how to impact someone else or how to make a contribution or how to give, right? To me, those are fulfilling things regardless if you have a business or if you're working for someone or whatever the case may be. 
that is the type of level of fulfillment I think we all need to allow us to kind of um, move forward in our day daily lives, especially in a working environment, because um, it's one of the greatest things to me in life is when you can, for me personally, is when you know you've been part of contributing to someone else's um, success, right? And so you kind of get that, is that intrinsic feeling that you um, get from helping someone else. And if you're in business or as a manager or owner or whatever that role is, if you have a team of people and you've developed those people, and I think the hardest thing for a manager, not for a manager, is to have a, is to understand that when they hire someone, they're hiring their replacement, right? But if you are a manager and you're hiring a replacement, um, then it's not like you're hiring a replacement for them to fire you. You're hiring a replacement for you to move up to the next position. Because that's one of the most impressive things that you can do is hire your replacement. Because then that means you can leave that role and go up to the next role. If that business doesn't appreciate that about you, trust me, there's a business that will. Because that's one of the most impressive things you can do as a manager of a team is to hire your replacement. And one of the most impressive things you can do as a manager of a team or a business and the greatest value in that business is the team. Right. And so if anyone asks you whatever you're doing, you know, as an owner or a manager, if that team is a very strong and powerful team that you've cultivated and that you've developed, right, you will get noticed inside of an organization. Um, and if you have a business, your business will grow and prosper. So it's really about your team, which goes back to are you trying to fulfill someone else? and make their life better and grow and cultivate them, right? And if you do that, your job becomes easier, your business will prosper. Amen, <laughs> amen to that. I have one last question and mm -hmm. this one is based on a um, research by CNBC. They said only 12% of all family owned businesses, all of them, so black, white, any race, only 12% last beyond the second generation due to acquisitions, shutting down, infighting, right. or whatever. Mm -hmm. What are you and your team doing to ensure that MRL and Design Essentials beat those odds? Um, yeah, I mean, any family business going to, of course, have its ups and downs. You know, we have, we have a lot of family members in here, right? And if you've been around 30 years since we started, well, you're almost family. Right? So I have, have those individuals, legacy employees as well. Um, and so it's, it's, it's one that takes communication. The biggest thing is as a business is evolving and is growing, its biggest challenge is that learning how, learning, identifying if my role or responsibility has out, is that I, can I continue to fulfill this role and responsibility, right? And the challenge normally is as the business grow and evolves, whether it's family member or not, sometimes that role of that responsibility can outpace the individual. Mm -hmm. And then the individual stays in the role. And then when they stay in the role, it stagnates that area, right? Because they're in the wrong seat on the bus, right? So basically, if you want to kind of um, um, make sure your business can sustain, then you have to have the ability to either remove the individuals and change roles, mm -hmm. right? Or figure out how to put them in the best place to win. 
And so that's what will stagnate a business and most likely will cause infighting amongst the family members, you know, is because things are changing and everyone is not growing at the same rate with the business. And they don't even know they're not growing at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a, a legacy employee, they don't even know they're not growing at the same rate. So it's a it's a it's incumbent upon um, ownership to help the individuals kind of evolve, right? To grow with that role, or and it's one of the more difficult things to do, find a role that that aligns now with that skill set as the business evolves, right? Or the tougher decision is, you know, um, can this person continue to can they continue to perform? in this entity at all do have a place right you know because you have a person who's willing and then able because you got a person who's willing and not able and at that point you have to make a tough business decision and, and so it's tough right most family business most business struggles i believe because you cannot make that tough personal decision about family and about friends and about legacy employees and they tend to stay within the organization right even though they the business, they may not be willing and able, and they stay mm-hmm. in the organization. Yep. And then when they stay in the organization, that mindset stays in the organization, that culture and impact stays within the organization, and then it stagnates the organization. Got it. Well, I just have to say, this conversation has been absolutely insightful. I have learned so much. I'm going to definitely be revisiting this over and over and over again. And I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to chat with the Sakita Method audience. All right. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me and having me um, on your podcast. It's been a great. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the questions. I've enjoyed the dialogue. And for your audience, you know, anyone, like I said, I try to answer the question according to my experience. I think that's the best way, right, is to kind of pass it along and to give as much insight as possible. So I really appreciate you having me on. And hopefully, you know, um, I, I was able to give someone some information that is going to help them wherever they are. Wow. Another amazing episode of the Sakita Method. I feel like anytime I have these conversations with entrepreneurs and executives, it's like going back to school for me. But I would love to hear which parts of this conversation resonated with you. Tag me in your post on Instagram or Twitter at Miss Success, that's M-I-S-S Success or The Sakita Method and use the hashtag The Sakita Method to just share your thoughts about this episode. I can't wait to hear, you know, the moments that mattered the most to you and the lessons that you learned.